In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Uh, we're continuing our mini-series on Christology today. Again, if there are any questions, please feel free to reach out uh, and let me know. Um, we're going to be developing a theme here for quite some weeks, so if there are uh, any concerns or if something is unclear, especially because there's quite a bit of information that I think that we're not usually accustomed to being uh, exposed to, uh, it's uh, certainly very welcome to receive questions so that we, you know, I can clarify any, any issues that there might be. Again, um, the starting point of our discussion is the cross. The cross is at the center of all history and our discussion must be centered on the cross. As we said in our last session, one of the things that catch many people off guard when they start reading the very popular on the incarnation by St. Athanasius is that it doesn't really focus very much on the topics that we think would fall uh, in this column of things related to the incarnation. You'd think that it'd focus quite a bit on the Holy Virgin Mary, for example, uh, and his taking flesh from her. Uh, but that is in fact, uh, what most people think when they think of uh, the Incarnation. That's not the focus at all. Uh, the primary focus of these works by St. Athanasius is the cross, and it's answering the question, who was it that died on the cross, and why did he do that? We have to keep in mind something that I think is often totally lost on us because we're so used to hearing and speaking about the biblical narrative in a certain way. We think about these things in an order of some supposed chronology of time. First, God exists and is in some time, quote-unquote, before the creation of the world. Even though we know that he's outside of time and we say that um, as, a, as a common, uh, common statement, uh, we still think about that, right? If, if you know, creation starts at a particular point in time, then there must have been a moment or, you know, so something that, that came before that, and that's where uh, God is there and he's deliberating about uh, creating. Uh, then he creates the world, and then our time begins, our chronology begins. Uh, he creates Adam and Eve with the plan of having them live in perfection. Uh, suddenly the plan goes wrong when they sin and fall, and then God, as a backup plan, sends the prophets and has a chosen people, the people of Israel, from which the savior of this sin and fall will come and then Christ comes and he dies on the cross and he resurrects and then things are fixed. And this is what everyone was waiting for. And most of that's wrong. And I'm going to say that again, that formulation of thought is wrong. No one in any of the older old Testament writings or in the prophets even speaks about the fall of Adam again after Genesis three. In all of the Old Testament, that's not an issue. People don't look back when they're enslaved in Egypt or when they're taken into captivity by the Babylonians and say, if only Adam hadn't sinned, we wouldn't be in this mess. Death is seen as an, an inevitability that has no cure. No one is waiting for a savior from death. There is no understanding of sin the way we understand it. Sin is often the reason why those in the Old Testament fall into troubles in this life. If you sin, something will go wrong for you in this life. And it's not until the cross that we see what the problem 
really is. It's only through Christ that we can look back at the scriptures and uncover its true meaning. We see this in the conversation that Christ has with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, where he opens the scriptures and teaches them why these things had to happen. They use the Old Testament scriptures, which are obviously at that point only referred to as the scriptures, and rightly so. Uh, he, he takes them and he says, let's go back and look into the scriptures and understand things in a different way because everyone was reading it and they weren't understanding it the way that it was uh, pointing to. It wasn't, they didn't understand that it was pointing to Christ. They didn't understand that it was pointing to the cross, even though they were very well versed in scriptures. And they'd read it many times and there were people that had studied it all of their lives. Someone like St. Paul, before his conversion, when he is a Pharisee and he studies these things in great detail, he's studying and he has no concept of, uh, of the, the issue being sin and death and that needs to be uh, overcome by a savior. And he's extremely well-versed in this. Um, but uh, these people don't see the actual problem and they weren't looking for Christ as the solution to that problem. In order to understand all of this, we have to start with Christ and his passion, which is why we're developing this series with this order in mind. Now, I said Christ's coming wasn't the backup plan. We said that that formulation of thought that God creates and he has some sort of a plan uh, for humanity and then humanity messes that up and it's very unexpected and now the plan has gone amiss and now he sends Christ as the backup plan. Uh, that is not uh, something that is consistent with St. Athanasius's thought or the early church uh, in general, right? It's not a backup plan. Let's continue in our study uh, of this work. Uh, and again, this is the precursor work to uh, On the Incarnation. It was a, it was a two-part uh, work that, that he'd put together. The first part was against the pagans and the second part was on the incarnation. Uh, and most all of us have not read against the pagans. And that's the work that we're going through right now before we get to on the incarnation so that we can see uh, more fully what it is that St. Athanasius is trying to, to explain to us here. And so uh, we're going to continue through against the pagans, which we started last time to see this spelled out uh, clearly. So this is uh, part of a very uh, long paragraph that's so dense and rich and profound. Um, but I wanted to take this, this first sentence here in isolation just so that we could see how St. Athanasius says this very clearly. He says, and the cause why the word of God, the word of God being the Logos, the word of God being Jesus Christ, the cause why the word of God really came to created beings is truly wonderful and shows that things should not have occurred otherwise than as they are. I want to stop here for just a second before we continue. See what's being said here. Things should not have occurred otherwise than as they are. Oftentimes, we wonder what would have happened if Adam hadn't fallen, or we place blame on Adam and Eve for subjecting us to this life with all of its sufferings. But what St. Athanasius is saying here, which might be scandalous to some, maybe at least to those who are paying attention, is that this world, 
the way that it's developed, including the fall, is the way that it was supposed to happen. Does that mean that God willed for man to fall? No. But does that mean that God knew that man would fall before he created the world, before he created man, and that he knew that the only way for man to live in eternal glory with him was for him to take flesh and die and rise from the dead? Yes. This isn't the backup plan. We're not living in plan B. This is the plan from the start. And before we all jump in and say, well, that's unfair for us because we have to suffer, take a step back and see that he, in his tremendous love for all of mankind, still willed to create everything, knowing that he had to come and suffer and die for us to show us true love and to share in something that we're going to get in, uh, into in the next slide here. The sacrifice is on his part, not ours. We'll speak about that at length once we get to the cross, but keep all of that in mind. Why then did he want to create us? Let's read on in the same paragraph from St. Athanasius. It says, but the God of all is good and excellent by nature. Therefore, he is also benevolent. For a good being would be envious of no one. So he envies nobody existence, but rather wishes everyone to exist in order to exercise his kindness. So seeing that all created nature, according to its own definition, is in a state of flux and dissolution, for the nature of created things, having come into being from nothing, is unstable and is weak and mortal when considered by itself. Therefore, lest it suffer this and the universe be dissolved back into non-being, making everything by his own eternal word and giving substance to creation, he did not abandon it to be carried away and be tempest-tossed through its own nature, lest it run the risk of returning to nothing. Let's take this apart uh, because there's multiple parts here. And when St. Athanasius writes, uh, it's so rich and so profound um, that one sentence, uh, and there, especially in, in the writings of the church fathers, there are definite run-on sentences that can last a whole page, and there's so much to, to unpack there. Um, so let's take, let's take that apart and see what he was saying here. God, being good and being love himself, did not desire to only keep love for himself, but wanted others to share in this love. He's self-sufficient, and he has no need for us. The persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit eternally love one another as God is love. But God did not want to keep this only for himself. So he created. Anything that has a beginning has an end. God has no beginning, and so he has no end. Everything that has a start has a finish. We know, for example, uh, that this is true even from a scientific standpoint. We know that the universe had a beginning and that it will have an end. The sun in our solar system won't shine forever. It will decay and die out and either become a neutron star or a black hole. And God, knowing that this would happen for creation and knowing that that would happen for man, wanted to prevent this. If man was simply created and didn't have a relationship with God, 
if God didn't want to allow for man to continue to exist, the natural development would be death. So if he just created and left things to run on its own, it would not continue into eternity because anything that has a beginning has an end. Uh, and so the, the natural development would have been death, but not only death, non-existence. And this is exactly what so many atheists say. And it's true, right? We're here for some time, maybe a few decades, and then it ends, and the lights go out, and we just stop existing. That would have been true without God, which is why in that, in that concept, if someone is an atheist and, and they're looking towards life, they'll say, well, you know, once this life ends, uh, it's not like a, a part of me continues on. Uh, there is no soul. And so the soul just, uh, as it doesn't exist, there is no place for it to go afterwards because it's not even there. Uh, and the body will die and uh, the flesh will corrupt and it will dissolve and go back into the earth. And that's it. And that is exactly what would happen if God didn't intervene. Notice that even in this concept that atheists have, death isn't seen as a problem that needs to be overcome. Life might be seen as something that should be extended. So we invest in medicine and new treatments to extend life. But everyone knows that at some point, everyone will die. And that's just accepted. I say that so we can hearken back to the start of the talk when we said that no one really saw overcoming death as the issue. It was just accepted as a fact of life. Without God, anything created would just go back into non-existence because it had a start. So, again, just to recap what it is that we're seeing on this slide, God is good, God is love, and because he's good, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't have envy towards other things sharing in this goodness. And he wants to give his kindness and share that with other beings even though he's self-sufficient because of his goodness, because he is good, he wants other things to be able to share in this. So he creates. And the natural way of things that would be created is, it has a start, it will have an end. And that end will continue into non-existence. So that's the point that, that we're at here. Continuing this paragraph, but being good, he governs and establishes the whole world through his word, who is himself God, in order that creation, illumined by the leadership, providence, and the ordering of the word, may be able to remain firm, since it participates in the word, who is truly from the Father, and is aided by him to exist, and not thus suffer what would otherwise have happened. I mean a relapse into non-existence were it not protected by the word, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For through him and in him, all things subsist, things visible and invisible. And he is the head of the church as the servants of the truth teach in the holy writings. So again, if you, if you notice, this is all, this one paragraph is one sentence, right? This is one sentence. So again, let's, let's unpack what's being said here. Because again, it's, it's very rich. And, it, and it's the foundational point for being able to see 
why it was that, that the cross had to happen. Uh, so God created the world by his word, by the logos, right? That's what logos means, the word. It means several things, but we like to translate it as word. Uh, and the logos is Jesus Christ. So God created the world by his word, and he governs and establishes the whole world through his word, through his logos. Creation would only be able to remain firm, he says, if it participates in the word. Man can only continue exist against his nature if he participates with the logos. Because again, the nature of created things is to go back into non-existence. So if something created is to continue to exist, it must participate with the word, with the logos. Because he's the one that this was created by and through and for. We have to be united to Christ. And this is why he says that he is the life. Without him, we tend back to nothingness. We would just cease to exist. Not just our bodies, our entire being. Anything that has a beginning has an end. We have a beginning. We would have an end if we weren't united to Christ. The reason why I'm repeating this over and over and over again is because this is a fundamental point for us to be able to understand things, especially when we get to on the incarnation. Even more surprising is what is identified as the church. St. Paul in uh, Colossians uh, chapter 1 here, he says that Christ is the head of the church, but the church isn't just what we think of as the church. The church is meant to be the whole creation. The entire universe is the church. And this is because everything was made by him and through him and for him. So when we say that he's the savior of the world, he isn't just the savior of mankind. He saves the world. See that St. Athanasius says that in this paragraph, in order that creation right, towards the, 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 the start of this paragraph. He doesn't say in, in order that man, he says, in order that creation, illumined by the leadership, providence, and the ordering of the word, may be able to remain firm. So that it wouldn't tend back into non-existence. So that creation doesn't just disappear and go back into nothingness. So that ultimately man doesn't go back into nothingness. But again, it's all of creation. And all of creation is called to be the church. All of creation, because it was made by Christ, it has this, just like what we were talking about last time, it has, it has his thumbprint all over it. And we see when we start, as we were uh, meditating on last time, when we look out into the skies, into the stars, and we see the amazing grandness of it, uh, or we, we look at uh, the, the, the intricacy of uh, the cell or DNA or proteins or something, you know, very small, um, we see his thumbprint on everything, which means that everything in this world was created so that it would point back 
to him because it has his thumbprints. And so, when we see here, when we talk about the church, the church isn't just our concept of the church. The church is a building uh, with icons and incense and hymns. And it's also not just uh, the, the people that are uh, within a particular faith, uh, so that those who recognize, only those who recognize um, Christ are uh, originally supposed to be part of the church. The entire world is the church. And he, as the head of the entire world, is the head of the church because he's the head of the world. I, I hope that you guys are following along here. Again, it's very profound. Um, and so we, we come to our last slide here. Uh, St. Athanasius, he continues and he says, his holy disciples teach that everything was created through him and for him. And that being a good offspring of a good father and true son, he is the power of the father. Jesus Christ is the power of the Father and his wisdom and word. He is the supremely perfect fruit of the Father and is alone Son, the exact image of the Father. When we read something like this, uh, again, I think because we're so um, used to hearing these kinds of phrases, we don't think about what they mean. So we think that it's just sort of a flowery, uh, poetic uh, way of, of describing Christ. Um, and so uh, again, we, we should take this apart and see what's being said here because Christ is the image of the father, the exact image, the exact icon of the father, as St. Athanasius says, we know God by knowing Christ. If we want to describe an attribute of God, we describe Christ, which is again why it's important that we start with Christ and not, and, and him crucified, and not just a general understanding of what God is in general attributes. He's all-knowing, he's all-powerful, he's all-present. Uh, all of these things, these, these uh, code words that, that we like to use, omniscient, om omnipresent, omnipotent, um, usually when, when we start describing things from a theological standpoint and we start working through things, we'll talk about God in general and then the Trinity and then Christology and we'll, we'll, we'll sort of work through all of these things. And so there's this, this general nebulous kind of understanding of who God is. You know, he's all powerful. Uh, and we have something in mind when we say that. But his ways are so different from our ways that they bend our minds. We think of an all-powerful God whose strength is shown in might and power that he can create and destroy things. And he can, in fact, do that. And he does that, right? But he shows his power in weakness, at least in what we perceive to be weakness. He shows perfect power on the cross. So when, again, if someone were to come and ask you, how powerful 
How strong is God? I think most of us, our, our mind would go to uh, look at how he created the universe and we'd start talking about all of the galaxies and um, you know, just the vastness of all of these things. Or, or if we weren't even aware of that, we'd go out and say, look at these tremendous mountains and the volcanoes and uh, you know, all of these things. Look how amazing and powerful uh, he is. Or if we see you know, any sort of a, uh, natural occurrences, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, you see the, the, the sort of the raw power of, of, uh, of creation. And so that's where our mind goes when we think about the strength and power of God. But if we really want to talk about his true strength being shown forth in, in its, its uh, greatest and most dynamic fashion, the most obvious show of his strength is on the cross. And that's exactly counter to what it is that we would think, right? We even say this uh, on, on Great Friday in Holy Week in a hymn called Omonoginis, uh, which means, uh, O only begotten. Uh, towards the end of the hymn, it says, uh, Holy Mighty, who by weakness showed forth what is greater than power, Holy Mighty, who by weakness showed forth what is greater than power. See what true might is, what true power is. It's seen on the cross. And again, I think that we, we lose sight of this, right? We take a look at the cross and we see, we see weakness. And we don't see the strength of that. We don't see that as, as that being a display of strength. And so again, we have to start with the cross if we're going to understand an attribute, uh, attribute about God, right? An attribute of God. What does it mean to be strong? What does it mean to be mighty? Instead of having it be this abstract thought of what strength and power and might is, he gives us the true example. This is true power. Christ on the cross. So that if you want to say God is strong or God is all-powerful, you don't just point at all of these things, which are also uh, a show of his power, but the show of his true power, his true strength, is on the cross. When we go over the, on the incarnation next, keep this in mind. We'll see this paradox come up over and over and over again, where strength is seen in suffering where perfect strength is shown in weakness, where life shines forth from death. And we're going to come back to this point repeatedly. Again, just to highlight what's being said here, everything was made by Christ and for Christ and through Christ, and it was made to share in existence with him. And the way that this will be so is through the cross. It's not by the supposed fantasy of what would have happened if Adam wouldn't have fallen. God knew Adam was going to fall. God knew that he had to take flesh and die and rise from the dead 
And God knew that this was the only way for man to share in true life with him. The way for Adam to have shared in the life of Christ was not for him to simply remain being perfect, because that, we know, isn't a reality. It's not a reality. That's not what happened. And so we can't just go into this sort of fantasy mode and say, what would have happened if X, Y, and Z? Uh, we have to look at the reality of things. And the reality is not just, again, like some split. It could have been plan A, but now we're going for plan B. And God's understanding before the creation, before anything, whatever that might mean, that's something maybe that we'll get into at some point. Outside of time, God knows that the way that man will be united to him, the way that man will be saved, is through the cross. There's a lot to unpack there. And God willing, we'll start getting into that in more detail uh, next talk when we talk about on the Incarnation. And again, if you have any questions at all, feel free to reach out. I know that this material is dense and it may be things that we haven't even heard before, but it's important that we go through the writings of the fathers so that we can discover more deeply and profoundly the beauty of Christ's love for us. Pray for the service and pray for the world uh, so that we can become true stewards of of the church. And glory be to God forever. Amen.